This podcast is produced by Encore Youth and Adult Activities. Welcome everyone to episode one, Freedom Summer 2020. My name is Saida Dunstan. I'm the executive director of Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities, and I am joined tonight by our guests, Dr. Samuel Roberts and Candice Abreu. The purpose of this conversation and discussion is to talk about COVID, the things that we've discovered through COVID, mid-COVID, we can't say post-COVID, and we wanna talk about different issues that we're seeing in the black and brown community specifically, but really what do we see for black and brown folks in the United States in the era of COVID. Tonight's conversation that we're gonna have with Dr. Roberts and Candace is really about education and the intersections of education, race, how we see it with COVID and how we see it as a public health issue. So I'd like to introduce first, Dr. Samuel Roberts. I'm gonna read a little bit of his bio. Both of our guests tonight are highly esteemed individuals, so please enjoy listening to who they are and their accomplishments. Samuel Kelton Roberts, Dr. Samuel Kelton Roberts, is an Associate Professor of History of Sociomedical Sciences and African American and African Diaspora Studies at Columbia University. At Columbia, he also leads the research cluster for the historical race study of race, inequality, and health and co-directs the Lehman Center of American History. Roberts is a former director of Columbia University's Institute of Research in African American Studies. He writes, teaches, and lectures widely on African American social history, medical, and public health history, harm reduction and drug policy, and criminal justice policing and social policy. So if you don't see why he's at an Elmcore podcast, I'm not sure what else to say. He's the author of a widely acclaimed book called Infectious Fear, Politics, Disease, and Health Effects of Segregation. And, it's, and he's currently working on a book tentatively titled To Enter a Society Which Doesn't Want Them. That's a powerful title. Um, Race Recovery and America's Misadventures in Drug Policy, a project covering the history of addiction treatment, harm reduction, and political inclusion from the 50s and into the 90s. In 2018, Dr. Roberts launched his own podcast, so we're grateful that he's gracing ours, a series called People Doing Interesting Stuff, and it's available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms in which he speaks with people working in public health and social justice, especially harm reduction, HIV, AIDS work, reproductive justice and criminal justice reform. He's also the co-host of a pod series, Black Lives in the Era of COVID-19. He tweets from at Samuel K. Roberts. Welcome, Dr. Roberts. Thank you, thank you, good to be here. And our second thank guest you. is- I feel like I should have given you more. My bio sounds so whack now. Thank you, Dr. Roberts. Oh, Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and our second guest is Candice Abreu. Let me first say that she is one of Elmcore's board members, one of our newest board members, one of our most um, vibrant board members, and someone that really does a lot for the organization. So I want to kind of highlight that before we even read her bio, because she does things like even comes to town halls to talk about race with our young people in our youth recovery clubhouse. Candace was born in England, a military family, and after moving quite a bit in her youth, finally landed in Queens. Woo -woo. 
After receiving her undergraduate degree in political science and economics from Fordham University, she entered into the nonprofit field. While working as a prevention education specialist, she began to feel a calling to work more closely with youth of color, but did not take the leap into education until years later. After a spontaneous move to Los Angeles, she began to work with large media companies doing copyright infringement work, while also spearheading company events and creating professional development programs. It was during that time that Candace decided that New York City and education were still, her call, were still calling her name. After three years in LA, she returned to New York and was accepted into the New York City Fellows Program. She received her master's degree in special education from LIU Brooklyn and began to teach at the Metropolitan Expeditionary School Learning School in Queens as a teacher, a, a teacher leader. I think leader is a, a more important term when we're talking about Candace. As a curriculum designer and an instructor, Candace has had an opportunity to learn the ins and outs of the educational experience and now intends to open her own school to address unique obstacles that exist for young people of color. Candace currently lives in Queens with her spouse and her two small children. So welcome, Candace. Welcome, thank you. Um, I kind of wanna, those bios are heavy um, and they're heavy for a reason. I really wanna thank you guys again to bring a lot of your genius to this conversation and this dialogue for the community at large that we, we speak to and to the folks that are impacted, not just by COVID, but really the reason why Elmcore came to saying we wanted to do this podcast. We've been around for 55 years. We believe that we've been a part of all dialogues that talk about community, community organizing, about race, anti-racist work. And we think it's really important to have folks who come on to have conversations from a very real perspective about what's happening in real life for the folks that we serve. Um, I want to say, as we said, there's no pressure, but I'm super excited to have you guys as our first and inaugural podcast recording to share with our community. And where else better to start than to talk about education and to talk about the space where we have to say education starts from the moment you arrive on the planet, right? You have to learn how to eat. You know, the people talk about breastfeeding as if children just innately attach. They have to learn how to eat. So education is something we do from the time that we have to learn how to live outside the womb of our mothers. And so I wanted to find out and have you guys speak a little bit about your work from your from your voice, not from your bio, and how you came to become stewards of knowledge and enlightenment. As Saida said, I'm a high school special education teacher. Um, I felt a calling specifically to enter into special education because it was very clear to me, even when I was young, that um, special education was disproportionately black and brown, particularly um, black and brown boys of color. And I, after having, you know, after becoming a parent and having my son and actually being approached by his teacher to have him tested for special education, like it, it it speaks to me even more the reasons why I do this work. And it really is to develop plans for a school that's devoted to holistically educating students of color. And everything that I do, um, whether it is in my student behavioral change programs or curriculum design or 
after school programs and other activities, town halls or other things that I'm involved in is all about garnering enough knowledge and experience in order to open up the school. So in reality, that is why I do the things that I do. I uh, became an educator, I, I think in a lot of ways, it was almost a default position for me. I come from a long line of educators, of you know, teachers um, of uh, various levels. So for me, it was, I think it was something that was just always emphasized in my family. And then specifically, I got to history. Um, <clears throat> It's kind of a, I mean, ironic way to come to a, a field, but I, I had history teachers who I didn't think were particularly inspiring, shall we say, in high school. Um, and it's, you know, it's the 1980s, so, you know, my friends and I were reading, you know, Ivan Van Sertima, Chancellor Williams, you know, we were reading uh, Walter Rodney, Franz Fanon, and we were, I, mean, I hate to say it, but we were terrible students. I mean, we basically heckled our teachers is what we did. Like anytime they told us something about U.S. history, we would counter with something about black history. And I guess we were being, I guess in reality, we were being smart asses really, to be honest with you. But I think we were educating ourselves at the same time. Um, so I guess to our credit, we knew we were educating ourselves, but I think we might've also been equally invested in just being smart asses in class. Um, but then fast forward, I, I really did fall in love with history and see it as a way of thinking, not just about our past, but also our present and future as well. So that's what I try to impart to my students. So I think that that's great. And I actually think um, both of you guys talk a little bit and a lot about really how our young people are seen and what they're taught. And I think that that's a lot of what this conversation is. I, if it makes you feel any better, Samuel, I might have been the same kid on um, on a different level uh, but I too challenged many of the things that were said to me but I think that's primarily because I was reading because I did know I did understand so as educators and more importantly as organizers how do you how do you see your role like how do you see your role and the idea of accountability to the people that you're providing education especially during this pandemic looking at all the global protests, things regarding police brutality, racial unrest. How do you see your role and your level of accountability for the people that you are charged with educating? Yeah, um, that's an excellent question. I mean, it's one that I've been spending a lot of time asking myself over the past you know, four or five months. What do we do, if you mean specifically about this moment and how do we, you know, we're, we're gonna be back in the classroom soon and it's on everybody's mind and as a historian i'm not always called upon to talk about the exact present moment um the way you might ask uh you know a political scientist or a sociologist or you know a healthcare economist or something but i do get asked to about what the past says about today and so i think what i'll be talking about in the classroom and out will be how our long history of inequity and and white supremacy and structural racism have given us these disparities in morbidity and mortality it's not um it's certainly not biological or at least you no know, genetic that people of color are dying from covid um in the you know in the at the rates that we are um it's really about the way we've structured our society and our economy and and then on top of that in terms of teaching the second challenge is how do you teach um, in the moment of 
you know, the, the renewed, I don't want to say renewed because it never got old, but I mean, I guess this increased energy in the movement for black lives, right? It's really incumbent upon us as educators to explain to students that this too also has a, um, a long history. Police brutality goes back, I mean, you know, if you really, if you're really going to get critical about it, I mean, police brutality is almost redundant. Um, that's kind of where police forces came from to be brutal, particularly to black populations. Um, and I think it's, I, I think all of us are going to be struggling to figure out ways to, to teach that historically so that we can arm students to be critical thinkers and policymakers uh, when they leave our classrooms after they graduate or when they go home and you know, do the work with you, like the youth training that you do. I mean, it's not even after graduation, you're training leaders who are, you know, 11, 12, you know, 15 years old. So I think that's part of the challenge. I wanna thank you for that response. Um, and uh, Dr. Roberts, as, as we always do, we, you know, talk before, the, we, we've learned, we've learned the skill of the conversation before the conversation. And, um, you know, one of the things that Dr. Roberts said to us earlier in our prep was, you know, I'm not really following a lot of the education stuff. And, but I think your what you just said made it very clear of why I thought it was really important for you to be our first guest as we talked about the genesis of where a lot of this stuff comes from because as a professor of history i think people make um, a his not for upon a historical mistake of continuing to not look at history as we move forward and continue to believe that you can really be in the moment right like like yeah. every Thing that you do and every decision that you make is in the moment and especially for communities of color if we're not grounded in the conversation or the history like I'm happy that you said Walter Rodney I'm of, I'm of Caribbean descent like you had to read Walter Rodney right but most kids don't and no. so like what is yeah. the historical importance of a person of of the magnitude of a Walter Rodney and how he was also removed from the movement you know, those mm. things are really, really important. So thank you for sharing that. Candace, how about your role and your accountability and how do you see it during this pandemic and this um, global protest? You know, it's interesting. I thought about it after um, our call earlier and <clears throat> I had gone out, I told you, Saida, I had gone out to the protests and I had been out there for weeks and weeks and weeks and there was a lot of passion and there was a lot of emotion and I felt strongly that it was not my place. It's not a place where I belonged and I realized that I was hugely accountable to my students in the classroom and that is where I was going to be able to breed the young activists that would then be the ones to go out and become the change agents to do the, to do the work. Because at this point, um, you know, we, it's not up to us, you know, um, we, we have to push forward in ways that you know our youth is going to have to do. So I've really been focusing on the development of students um, and making them see themselves as leaders and as change agents in and of themselves. Like I've hosted town halls, open Zoom mics. I work very closely with children who have been labeled disadvantaged, but have also provided them with resources, readings, books, music, and just tools to help them think differently about the world that they live in. Um, and I think a lot of our students, especially the ones in high school, I teach 11th and 12th grade, are only beginning to see the disparities, are only beginning to see like, hey, these things don't make sense. And I always 
laugh and tell them, you know, Tupac said we ain't meant to survive, it's a setup. And they're seeing the reality in those words. But I also want them to understand that the systems that are in place are, are deeply rooted in the way that society works, whether it be in real estate, housing, education, employment, government, healthcare, all, they're all set up for the other side to win. And it doesn't mean that we cannot come out on top, but we need to begin naming those disparities early. So when Samuel mentioned those things earlier, it really spoke to the kind of work that I do. So I don't necessarily look at the past. My focus really is on breeding these leaders. And it's so unfortunate that, you know, we're often unable to give students what they need or we're un often unable to give children what they need in terms of basic necessities, but it's that literacy, it's that knowledge that I'm, I'm here to um, arm them with. And our students, especially black and brown students are labeled, they're unfairly targeted, and they have perceived abilities that are informed by their race before they've even opened their mouths. And, you know, John Lewis, you know, rest his beautiful soul, said that our students are often searching for a way out, but the reality is like our students are actually searching for a way in. They're searching for a way to become, you know, pieces of this large puzzle where they often have been structured where they don't fit. So like that's where I kind of see my accountability, helping students really see um, their way into the society that has historically shut them out. Yeah, that's a, um, a really powerful statement and you almost closed, um, and I know unintentionally, close to the title or the possible title of Dr. Roberts's book um, about, you know, people being in a society that doesn't want them. And how does that impact folks from Genesis, right? From the beginning, how does it play out now? Um, I wanna talk a little bit, because we talked about history, we talked about education, we talked about the importance of representation in education, the importance of how expectations are created for black and brown youth and how that shows up. And so I wanna talk a little bit about the history and the connection in the now to the concept and the models of freedom schools. Um, I'm a big uh, proponent of pushing the knowledge of understanding freedom schools and that this is a big part of a movement. Uh, Elmpour again has been around for 55 years. We started in 1965. Freedom schools and the freedom school movement became very popular in 1964. Um, one of the reasons why we decided just today to really call this particular podcast Freedom Summer 2020 was because in our prep call and we were talking about freedom, um, freedom schools, Dr. Robert Samuel really kind of talked about what Freedom Summer was. And I think it's important to talk about the fact that in 1964, in New York City public schools, that 450,000 students participated in a boycott. One of the largest civil rights um, protests historically in this country. It was New York City. You know, people always think about freedom schools. They think about Mississippi. They think because that's really where it got a lot of its legs. But a lot of those kids, over 100,000 of, of those young people, ended up attending alternative freedom schools. They, they decided to go to freedom schools. And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about the idea of what could what could a freedom school model look like and or benefit young people of color in present day? Um, 
how could it look in publicly funded schools? Because as you know, the freedom schools were not a part of the school systems. They were an alternative to that. But how could that look within the school systems? What does conscious education mean? How does it change? And the reason why I want you both to kind of dig on that and unpack that a little bit is because one of the things that we want to do at Elmcore as far as policy work moving forward, watching the protests and like you said, Candace, I used to protest Patty and saying to myself, but I don't belong out there anymore. And a lot, and not because I won't protest, right? But um, two, because COVID really had, had a sister shook. Let's be really honest and clear about that. But it really made me think that we have to have strategic plans of how we're going to address systematic racism. And I feel like education is being missed right now in this conversation, but freedom schools are a good kind of response to what we were seeing about racial unrest and um, people not wanting us in their buildings, right? It was a response to the fact that people didn't want to integrate the schools. I know it's a lot to kind of digest as one single question, but it's really the question. Like, how can things like that impact how we do and is it important like is that kind of conscious education important in a day like today absolutely i think there i think there's a really big opportunity right now to develop very specific strategic schools that benefit um black and brown students i said earlier that part of my goal is to breed young activists right but activists need to know what they're fighting for and i think that freedom schools have a huge opportunity especially right now with the power of literacy and knowing your own history and having students really understand the power of their own lives and their own voice um, and that they don't have to accept accept schools the way that they exist right now you know as the way the schools exist right now they're very white american privilege centric with a little bit of black and brown sprinkled in amongst the centuries but there are literally thousands of years of beautiful history that are being missed and I think that in freedom schools, they can fill in the gaps that traditional white American schools have historically missed. They leave those pieces out very strategically in order to continue that, that place of power and privilege. Um, I think there's a huge benefit in students understanding and seeing themselves and what they're being taught. Um, I've told Saida this before, but you know, when I went through my schooling, I had one black teacher from kindergarten through high school. And that one black teacher taught music. So the history of my people was not there. So there was no pushback because I had no platform to, to speak on, right? And you can't be what you can't see. So if I'm not seeing power and privilege, I'm not going to believe that that's a place in which I can exist. Um, in thinking about the way that the model could benefit state funded school systems, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, uh, my school suffered really huge budget cuts um, recently, and fortunately, we're not having to let go of staff, but all of our programming is gone. And we were already at a disadvantage when it came to curriculum because our teachers design their own curriculum and most of it is beautiful, but our student voices are left out. We are still learning about Christopher Columbus. Why? At this point, it's not even being tested on the Regents exam. So it really is just about people repeating this this sad history that keeps getting pushed forward. And um, we talked earlier about these pod schools and uh, privileged parents taking their white students out of the school system so that they can be privately educated somewhere else. And in thinking about that, you know, it 
it speaks to the notion of like, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we creating these schools where we're educating our own students, right? We, we talk about the 60s and, and, and segregation, you know, the people that were fighting for segregation, uh, white people that were fighting for segregation weren't necessarily sending their students, uh, or for desegregation rather, weren't sending their students to our black and brown schools. They were okay with, hey, let's bring them all together, but then they pulled all their kids out. So there's really, you know, this, this space where we are constantly trying to activate this notion of like black power and black empowerment in our schools and we're, we're missing that opportunity like Saida said earlier we don't do it now we educate students off of this old european model that isn't relevant to them today and i think freedom schools could fill that gap in providing that conscious education that students just do not they just don't get it now i mean i'm just fascinated by candace's last answer there i feel like i have more follow-up questions for her than i do an answer you know from myself that's the podcast interviewer, interviewer in me. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be on the questioning of end of things, not the answering side. Um, I agree 100% with that. I think um, if there's one thing that uh, this current pandemic has, I was about to say shown us, but really just reminded us, is how broken the system is right now. Um, and, you know, the question then is, you know, do you tinker around with it, and, you know, quote unquote reform, or do you you know, break it all up and redesign it from the ground up. Um, I know the first option sounds the most attractive because the idea of breaking anything down and then trying to rebuild it is never a fun, um, you know, prospect. But I think that's what it might take, though. I think the model that, as Candace said, the model that we've been using is one that's been out of date for probably at least a couple of decades. I mean, in terms of the mismatch between what people are being taught and then what they're able to do with that education after graduation um, clearly has been, I mean, from my perspective anyway, and I, I don't teach in secondary education, but from what I think I know, there's been a mismatch in that. So we, we have to do all that. All of it has to be redone. Yes. Um, and I think um, the interesting thing in the conversation about freedom schools or the concept of it, and to your point, Samuel about how difficult it is to hear people say things like dismantle, right, the educational system or um, words like abolish uh, the police, um, the police system and things. People have a real hard time hearing those words because they can't reimagine, right? They can't reimagine what it could look like. And so we tend to always go to what is easy and palatable, but I will say they reimagined the economy um, in this country post-Civil civil War when the entire economy of this um, country was based on slavery, right? And they reimagined it. So it's not that the economy and how it was structured is even gone away fully, but there was some reimagining. And I think sometimes we have to be courageous that we have to use words like dismantle and abolish and eradicate and you know deconstruct in order to imagine what a real education for young people could even start to be right like we have to start to be very intentional and that's what organizing is so there's been a lot of conversations what we what we're talking about and there's been a lot of conversations about covid-19 and how it's impacted education of young people right and as Candace spoke earlier about the idea of what 
affluence and opulence can do that you can decide to create pot. Um, but I also want to say that a part of freedom schools or when we talk about the Panthers breakfast programs, they weren't rich people who did those, right? So sometimes we also have to remember the abundance model in black and brown communities that we too can build things. Um, you do have the capacity to do so. And that's also looking at the ab abundance model, which brings me back to the concept of there's a lot of conversations with COVID and the achievement gap, right? And the fact that black and brown kids, specifically black and brown boys, typically a lot of the conversations about the achievement gap, and the fact that young people of color are so far behind educationally by the time they get to universities, like when they get to you, Dr. Roberts, you know, their education, even though Columbia is able to, as I hate to say it this way, they can cherry pick, right? They can cherry pick the kids, the young people of color that they allow in because there is this level of um, requirements and uh, educational prowess that you must have in order to go into an esteemed Ivy League. But the reality of it is a lot of kids are going into universities, which are supposed to be the spaces of enlightenment, without the knowledge that would be required. And so the achievement gap has been a conversation. The fact that we were not prepared and no school system in the United States was prepared for remote learning. We're talking about the expansion and the exposure to young black and brown kids in the achievement gap. But I kind of want to get your view on the achievement gap, that conversation about the achievement gap, and how do you see it with either the people you see in high schools or the people that you see in the university level? Because I will even dare to say, even the most educated black and brown youth, just based on the structures in this country, still come at certain places with disadvantages. Yeah, again, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, if if I read correctly what you're implying in the in the um, in the question. Yeah, a where we are now clearly is not good for the state of already fraying an already fraying educational system. But then also the same way that it might be time to dismantle a lot, if not all of our of that system, what comes what needs to come prior to that is dismantling our way of thinking about education. And clearly this, this dialogue of uh, this trope of an achievement gap captures some realities, but then implies other ones that may not be necessarily appropriate. And I think you were mentioning those education pods, which I don't know if all of your listeners know about this, but just for background info, um, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, there are families who are organizing themselves basically to hire private tutors for small groups of students. They're basically forming independent schools um, with their own money um, that aren't even chartered at all. It's just informal. Um, and it takes a lot of resources, like thousands of dollars per, per student. Um, and I think those type of things, when we think about how that's been the dynamic in education for decades, where you know, people have been able to pull their kids out of public school or go to a private school, or they might have extra money for after school um, programs that, you know, other families can't afford. Then the achievement gap becomes really a, needs to be a discussion about a wealth gap, right? It's not that people, there's a gap between achievement. Um, if there were a way to measure achievement based upon where you start off and the resources, that gap, quote unquote, might not exist. You, you know, I mean, if you look at a kid who's at a private school and then gets, you know, top notch after school 
education and then they're in these great summer camps all summer well it's like yeah i, I should hope you would achieve a lot i mean that's <laughs> that's what the investment's for um but and i'm being kind of glib about it but i'm you i'm doing that to illustrate that we the, uh, there's something about the way that we've, and, and Candace might agree or, or, or disagree, because I'm not really the expert on this as she is. I th what I think I've discerned in the dialogue is that there's a way in which achievement gap really impl almost implies that we need to get these students to learn more, as opposed to we need to get ourselves to offer them more and really think about, rethink how we do schooling here and how we, how we um, delegate it or distribute it as a public good. And so he still says he's not the expert. That is definitely. That's just thoughts right there. That's just, right. this is my opinion. But, but that's, what, that's what makes the expertise, right? The expertise is the fact that, and that's why I say about the abundance model in black and brown communities and this accepting it is that we are the resources, the riches that are in our communities because we can think about certain things. Because you said something that sparked um, something Candace and I actually, when we met, we had these historically like connections, like, oh, we went to the same high school. And so she and I both went to um, private a private Catholic high school, obviously at different times. She's a, a little younger than me, not much. But um, the reality of it is in that conversation, as you talk about, it's also talking about the wealth gap, right? my parents weren't rich right they probably really could not afford to send my sister and myself to a private school but because of their desire to get us an education that they thought they thought because they didn't know because my parents were immigrants so they only knew of the public school education what they had heard and so because they didn't know that there was good places for public education it just was not set up for our children they then in turn put themselves in a situation, a lot of times, a lot of families putting themselves in debt, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to chase um, what we believe education gives uh, people of color. We have a very different understanding when we say rethinking it. Everything Samuel said, I 100% agree. I think as he was going through our explanation, rethinking schools, dismantling schools is the piece that kind of keeps jumping out um, in my mind and I, I think about and not to name Columbia but so I'll name Harvard instead you know thinking about the population of students and how they get into school right and this like, perceived idea that you need all of these abilities to get into these Ivy League schools and the data might be a little off but I think it's about 43 percent of students entering Harvard are the children of uh, donors are athletes are legacy students so there is no actual perceived there's no ability there um you know and the fact that there are so many um lawsuits now about parents paying their way into these well-to-do schools really speaks to the idea of like what is the purpose of education why do we do it do we do it so that we can send our kids to college because we think that it's going to bring them to a place that they are they've already like saida said they're disadvantaged from the jump so if we're really thinking about what the purpose of education is and how you know we bring that back to how students feel when they're in school and again like my expertise really is in secondary but you know our students don't trust figures in power and there's you know they're, they're, they're they understand that they're targeted and you know and also the late great james baldwin because he's my favorite so he even said like you want me to trust in a power that provides me with benefits that i've never seen 
how do you expect me to continue my life going through these motions and, and thinking about like what, what purpose is trigonometry to a, a student who has to commute from Jamaica, Queens every day, two and a half hours to school? What does he care what, you know, the Pythagorean theorem is? It's not relevant to his life and it won't be relevant to his life when he leaves. So I think, you know, coupling that really, and really thinking about, again, what Samuel was saying, that, that wealth gap, you know, when I think about my experience in high school, all the students that did super well had parents who could afford SAT testing, you know, who couldn't? Me, my parents barely paid tuition. Um, and I think about my students now who we are, we're in a, a Title I school. Um, we're at about, we were at about 70% uh, students who are low income and all of the students who could afford SAT testing, which is roughly $450, $500, which is a lot of money for our families, um, they were almost all white or students um, who grew up in privilege. So when we, we think about you know, what, what school is designed for, like school as it exists now is designed to push forth the ideals of white privilege and power. If we think back to all the things that impact our students, you know, the policing in schools, there's no wonder that defunding the police is, is in the news now, but I've watched school safety officers bring students into classrooms where there are no other adults for supervision, no people that work in that school in there, and they've searched them, and they've ripped through their lockers, and they've taken away the dignity that these students have. And in many ways, school is their safe place. You know, a lot of our students, especially during COVID, their trauma is often targeted at home. Sexual assaults, is happening at home with family members. These people are losing their apartments. I have students who have two, three families living in an apartment now, and there are all kinds of things happening in those apartments. Do you want my students to then come to school and sit there to talk about prose of, of British literature? It's irrelevant. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I think as we continue to push the boundaries of what it really means to have free schools and have, like Saida said, conscious education. Like what are the tools that we need to equip our students with so that they can then carry those tools onto, you know, post-secondary if that's what they choose to do. I think there's also this like disconnect between um, educate, uh, what is Saida, you said, you called it the silver bullet, right? Yeah, the silver bullet, yeah. the idea that we can, we can take care of this big beast of racism and wealth you know, wealth disparity, health disparity with education. We will educate ourselves out of it. And, and, it's, and it's untrue. We have so many students that go on to graduate school who, who do post-masters and their experience still shows that they are not good enough in terms of what, what society is looking for. Education is not the key. But if it is the key, it, it's not the education that our students are receiving now. It is an education that I think was attempted in the 60s and needs to kind of be revitalized and pushed. There are schools in DC and in Manhattan that truly exist as freedom schools now. And I think those are the models where we're seeing the most success. There's an all boys school, a charter school, I think in DC that's seen wondrous success, true measures of students applying to and attending college where they're college ready, right? Because we're also pushing out our black and brown students because teachers just don't wanna deal with them anymore. Um, we're pushing them out before 21, before they've achieved all of their requirements. And then we're pretending that, oh, in a couple of years, you can apply to college as though that's the, that's the path that they need to be taking. Um, 
So I really think yeah. like going back, like it's really like the purpose. What is our goal when we're thinking about these things? So thank you for that. And I think that um, we can talk about that. But quickly, I will say, Candace and I were on a call last week with some young people, and more than half of the young people, when we asked them about five terms, we talked about race, racism, purpose of education, policing, community organizing, and we asked them which term would they walk away really wanting to unpack, and more than half of them said it was the purpose of education that they wanted to unpack. So I think that that's really a huge question for young folks. But Sam, I don't want to, Samuel, I'm sorry, I don't want us to miss the opportunity to really talk about pub the public health aspect of what education does for public health, what does public health mean, intersectionality of race, health, um, the stuff that's in your wheelhouse about the disparities yeah. of health and reproductive health and health literacy and how does education, how can we see educa public um, education as a public health issue when there are huge disparities in it? Yeah. I um, I, uh, I I agree with both of you all about education not being the silver bullet the way at least as it's <clears throat> advertised. Um, I think that that discourse leaves people who don't, you know, meet that level of achievement that we'd all like, and then it makes it look like we're blaming them. It's like, well, you had education, right? Um, and quite often, like the education doesn't match the opportunities available, as as Candace was just saying. I agree with that, but I'm also very—I I also have a very strong faith in education, which I, you know, I readily admit is a bias, you know, produced, you know, from like I said, my family were educators, and I'm an educator. Um, but I also say that because what our schools at their best, which is to say, uh, Candace, I've heard a lot about your teaching, your dedication. So I, what I, you and I are just meeting now, but what I know about your work is that you represent the best we have in terms of people in the classroom who are motivating students. Um, and what I just heard you say indicates that as well, that education in itself is a way of creating a society. And that there's just certain things that we want all people to know. We want, there's certain questions that we want all every, everyone to ask, even if they don't have the same answers. There's certain questions we want everyone to ask, like what does it mean to have a just society? And justice is not about what you want. Sometimes it means sacrifice. Sometimes it means, you know, seeing a larger picture. And those are questions that I'm not sure we're always asking. And the other thing is that it's also a way of making sure that our young people, as they become adults, have an investment in this society. When we, you know, think about issues like, you know, people who are anti-mask, you know, it's like clearly, like, if you don't believe in what a mask can do to, to protect you and people around you, like you need to have a greater engagement with science. Like somewhere a science teacher might have failed you. I mean, either failed you in educating you or maybe they gave you a failing grade because you just didn't want to study. But either way, it's science. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, make, I'm taking anti-maskers as an example. Um, but, you know, we've seen that in our own communities where a lack of engagement in science or a lack of engagement with, or a lack of um, trust in society can lead us to do, you know, to have some pretty skewed up views as well. Like when HIV was a big thing in the 80s, you know, it was very common in our communities to say, well, that's for, that's a gay white man thing. That's, that's not, that's not going to affect me. Or they could say this was, you know, HIV is a conspiracy. It was creating a laboratory to kill black people, you know, conversely, neither one of which is true. 
but were certainly understandably, I think, based in a perception of, oh yeah, this government's never given a damn about me. Like it's completely believable they would, like this thing's ravaging my community right now. It's completely conceivable that they would have developed this thing just to do that. Because let's be honest, if you were trying to develop something to really hurt black people, it would, you know, HIV would be a good place to start, right? Like particularly the way the policy we rolled yeah. out really. Um, so I guess what I'm saying in, that education is a way for all of us to think about our citizenship as well. It's not just about the individual and this quote unquote achievement gap. We need to, like certain questions need to be baseline questions. And I think maybe that's what we're not doing. Certainly um, not for everybody. So I think, it, I guess in some, and I'm kind of free, you know, freestyling here, just thinking out loud. On one hand, it hurts us when you have people who are anti-masking and, you know, anti, you know, they don't believe in climate change and all that. But then, you know, it could hurt our communities as well if we're not invested in the science or invested in like trust society or the education system. And I think you did a great job of explaining why it's a public health issue. Right. Um, the health of a community is based on their knowledge of what is going on. And if in the school system, you talked about distrust, you, you know, the reason why these conspiracy theories can be created sometimes to our demise is because we say things like the children of the future, education is key. They're, you know, they have to go to schools because that's where they'll learn. And the reality of it is that those are incubator places where distrust starts, where miseducation begins, where all of that stuff happens, where we lose literacy to be able to ask the question, where curiosity is crushed, where things that are told for young people to move forward um, are kind of created at the very beginning of their lives. So I just wanna thank you guys both. This has been a great conversation. Um, uh, as an, an inaugural conversation, it is incredible. I think it sets the tone. Uh, I feel for all the speakers that come behind you, we're gonna have folks talking about um, gun violence. We're gonna definitely talk about substance use and treatment. We're gonna be talking about our seniors and what they're experiencing with social isolation. As an organization, Elmcor, as you know, uh, works with people from from pretty much from birth to when they um, transition out of here and uh, as elders. And so we're able to address all of the things. This multi-service organization is going to have multi-layered conversations about race and systematic racism and how it's been impacted. And we, um, we always say the resilience in our community is by taking something and saying, what can we do next? And so COVID made us step up into the virtual world and what we're gonna do next is continue to have this conversation. So I wanna thank you both, Dr. Samuel Roberts and Candace Abreu for being a part of this conversation about trauma and education and what we can do to make this summer our Freedom Summer 2020, where we get young people to be free. And Saida, thank you for all the work you and Elmcore do as well. Um, Absolutely. I think uh, Candace and I both uh, been watching what you do, and I, I'm I'm not speaking for her, but I'm sure she would agree. Like we're both big admirers, big fans of the work you do. And it's a pleasure and honor to be the. You said we're the inaugural. Inaugural, baby. Boy, <laughs> now the pressure's really on. Pressure's really on now. But uh, no, thank I mean, you so much. It's good to see you both.
yeah, we couldn't have done any of this without your leadership, Saida. Encore is unbelievably fortunate to have you. And we are very fortunate to have you in our lives as well. And, you know, here's to keeping this going and making it a long-term cast. Today, as we record Encore's very first podcast titled Freedom Summer, we want to take a moment to honor and acknowledge John Lewis, civil rights icon and hero, whose funeral was today eulogy provided by President Barack Obama, who gave us the inspiration necessary for us to continue, as John Lewis said, to get in good trouble. On behalf of Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. And everyone, please remember to subscribe and share our podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Social media handles are at Elmcore. It's on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please make sure to also stay connected and follow both of our guests. Dr. Roberts, would you like to say your Twitter again? It's at Samuel K. Roberts. And Candace? You know I don't mess with social media. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, guys. If you want to know what Candace thinks, just call her and she'll tell you. That's you it. Call me. <laughs> Good night, everyone. It's been a great night. conversation. Good night. Good to see you.